I'm Dan Hebert, Financial Planning Program Director and Advisor to the Financial Planning Club here at MSU. And welcome to the Mad Money Talk podcast, podcast by students for students, helping you make the best choices you can with your money while you're still in school and also when you're getting started in your career. Topics will range from how to save money, how to invest, how to understand your benefits once you've entered your careers. And it's all in a fun environment. As you listen to each episode, jot down at least one thing you can apply today to make a difference in your money. Now, on with the show. Greetings and welcome to another exciting episode of Mad Money Talk, a podcast by college students for college students. We have an exciting guest today, Mark Bryce, who is a partner and senior financial planner at a awesome firm, Mindful Asset Planning. So thanks, Mark, for joining us. I'm going to turn it over to Charlie, and he's going to take it away. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. So yeah, I'm Charlie Frazzini. I'm a senior financial planning student at Minnesota State Mankato. Uh, and today we're going to be talking with Mark Bryce, lead financial planner at Mindful Asset Planning. And we're going to talk about how you can manage a PAC schedule, find jobs and internships, and when you're in those jobs and internships, some best practices and manage your expenses. So I'll turn it over to Mark now. Uh, why don't you tell us about yourself a little bit and how you decided to get into financial planning as a career? Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. Um, I had a, a bit of a, a left turn in my mid-20s um, that led me to financial planning. Um, I actually went to, to school. I grew up in the Twin Cities and went to to uh, an engineering program at the University of Minnesota and got a degree in structural engineering. And that was kind of the first uh, steps into the working world for me. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it had to do with math and numbers. And of course, financial planning has to do with math and numbers. But uh, I, I quickly learned that the, um, the, the, I, I'd call it the function of a, of a, civil engineer is really to make sure things are safe, which results in it in it kind of feeling like being a regulator and saying, oh, no, you can't do that. You you need to build it this other way. And of course, then it's going to cost more and then it's going to take longer. And clients didn't like to hear that. Right. But, you know, it had to be safe. So there's no other way. And so it it felt like I was sitting kind of at the other side of the table from the, from the clients that I worked for. And, and that's what sort of rubbed me the wrong way. You know, I think when I grew up, um, my parents worked in helping professions and, and my dad in particular had a role with the state of Minnesota where he was really focused on uh, creating, creating outcomes where all stakeholders had success. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so I ended up hiring a career coach. Um, I paid for it myself, uh, which at the time was quite a bit of money. Um, and I did some sessions with a career coach and, and I realized that I needed to find a role where uh, I could really sit down with people uh, uh, on the same side of the table. And uh, I always had an interest in personal finance. And so that's kind of what led me down 
down the path into financial planning. Um, maybe a, a wrong start first, but I have no regrets with that engineering degree. I learned a lot uh, about the world and about myself in, in doing that. And you can always pivot. Yeah, that's cool to hear about the unique switch into financial planning. So when you switched from engineering to financial planning, were there any kind of challenges or hurdles that you had to face when you were making the switch? Well, anytime there's a transition, there's always, uh, there's always the positive aspects of it, which you're aiming for. Right. Um, but as you, as you mentioned, there's always the challenges that, that come up. And so, uh, I was, I was married at the time. And one of the things that, that we had decided was that we were going to live off of one paycheck. And so, um, we, we saved out of both paychecks and, uh, when the time came where I, you know, basically quit my job and went back to school to get my CFP, um, certified financial planner designation, uh, we were able to just live off of my wife's paycheck. And so, uh, that could have become a, a big hurdle. Um, it wasn't great. I mean, we had to make make decisions. We had to, uh, you know, do a few less things because of that. But um, but that was one obstacle. Um, you know, not to mention having to do CFP classes on evenings and weekends and and that sort of thing. But I think the biggest challenge was uh, building the connections that I needed to have in order to get my foot in the door in this industry. Um, I didn't know anybody. And so uh, I, I can't recall exactly my pathway to it, but I ended up um, I ended up joining the Financial Planning Association, the Minnesota chapter. Uh, at the time, I think there were eight or 900 members and they had these monthly meetings and you could go to it. And um, I joined as a, as a student, which was low cost. You always want to look for the student discounts for everything, of course. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was tough to walk into that room knowing very, very little about the industry and, uh, uh, and, and just be comfortable with myself in in that space. Um, I knew the engineering world, but I did not know the financial planning world. And so, um, so I think from a, uh, um, just logistical challenge. It was tough to build those connections. And then um, I had to kind of, um, I don't know, be humble and and just go in with an open mind and learn and ask lots of questions. And um, I, I did get really good advice early on um, from somebody that I just happened to randomly meet at, at one of those meetings, at one of those educational meetings who said, you know, Anytime you meet with somebody, you should always ask for two more names and introductions and uh, then go have coffee with those two, two people and ask for two more names and then, you know, meet meet one of them for lunch and schedule an informational interview with the other one. And, and you know, that's how I built kind of my network of contacts. And I just put it in a spreadsheet and I met a whole bunch of folks and I took notes and um and just asked a whole lot of questions in, until I found uh, enough connections and companies who were looking to grow. Um, and, and that's how I, how I got my first job in the, in the industry.
Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and that kind of goes into the next question, which is tips for students that are looking to get an internship. And I know you kind of uh, mentioned going to the FPA and networking events like that. So do you have any maybe ideas or tips for a student that's looking to get an internship or a full-time job? Maybe some kind of networking events or resources like LinkedIn that they could look for? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, fast forward now, um, I, I work for a financial planning firm um, in the South Metro of the Twin Cities, and we've got uh, many hundred clients and we've got a team of, of folks um, and we hire interns annually and, uh, and very often we're, we're hiring for full-time positions as well. Um, and so I, I, I can speak to that question from my perspective now sitting on kind of the hiring side of the table. Um, and, you know, the first thing that, that we're always looking for is, you know, what's your story? What, what, where does your passion lie? Um, how do you describe your purpose and your values? And, uh, every company has a culture. And every company has a passion and a purpose and values. And uh, smart leaders are going to look for people who just naturally fit that. Um, when when we think of of what what our culture is and the type of folks that we're looking for, um, what we're really looking for is somebody who is humble, somebody who doesn't know it all and they know they don't know it all and they are eager to learn. So they're hungry. They're humble and hungry, eager to learn, eager to grow, eager to try new things, uh, ready to roll up their sleeves um, and do complicated things and do mundane things. And, and, you know, everybody knows how to make the coffee at our office. And, you know, the first person there, uh, if, if there's a dustiness snow goes and brooms off the front steps um, so being humble and hungry, and then, you know, the obvious thing that, that, uh, every employer is looking for is, you know, you gotta be smart, you know, so it's the grades and, and those sorts of things. But I, I think that's kind of table stakes. You know, if, if, if you're not getting the grades, if you're not passing the classes and, and don't have, have that, um, then, then it's kind of a stop in terms of, of that hiring process from our perspective. Um, but what really is kind of the ace, the ace up your sleeve, if you're looking for a job is if you can speak to your, uh, your, your values, you know, why you care about helping people or, um, or, or better yet demonstrate, um, through, through who you are and, and, and the, the things that you do outside of the classroom, um, you know, that, that eagerness, that, that hunger to, to learn and to grow, um, that humility, that, uh, uh, a, a ability to just naturally learn and grow every day, um, perhaps through questions that, that one might ask. So that's kind of what we're looking for from a cultural perspective. Um, more specific things that I, that I think, um, 
we notice when we're looking at resumes, when we're having conversations with folks is really initiative. Um, the initiative to go to the industry association events, the initiative to, um, you know, find that nonprofit organization that um, teaches you how to do tax returns for low-income folks uh, or um, teaches you how to counsel uh, counsel people who don't have banking accounts into in and get you know um, uh, fee-free you know checking and savings accounts. Um, taking some initiative to uh, read the industry you know periodicals and um, uh, and in our industry, Michael Kitzes is kind of the the all-star out there, and so um, you know just trying to learn as much as you can and demonstrate that you're learning as much as you can about the industry through both the, uh, the information that you're taking in and the activities that you're, that you're getting involved in. Um, and the more you know about the industry, the more you can relate uh, what I would say are seemingly unrelatable things to uh, real practical skills. Um, I'll just give an example here. You know, we, we talked with someone who uh, who worked at Chipotle and they made burritos and I'm sure they learned about cooking and uh, customer service and things like that. Uh, and then we talked to somebody who, um, as a college student, coached a high school ultimate Frisbee team. And they talked about navigating um, conversations with parents who thought their kids should get more playtime or thought somebody shouldn't or were upset about something. And, you know, that's a whole different skill set uh, of leadership. Um, and uh, you can't please any, can't please everybody when, when you're in a leadership position. And it's tough and there's trade-offs. And so, you know, we look at those two types of things on a resume and uh, the latter is, is um, much more indicative of somebody who, um, uh, it has really grown a lot through through the the you know part time job choices that they that they took versus the former. Yeah, that if I can just jump in, that was an awesome explanation. Thank you for sharing that, and I agree with you one hundred percent. You know, when I read through my students' resumes, and I've got a couple that I have to read through this week. Kind of to your point, I I think the term that I've learned is called proof points. So looking at a resume, and instead of saying, you know, even if you had a job at like Chipotle, where, you know, you could describe your duties in your resume as, you know, met clients orders uh, successfully or something along those lines. Um, how did you, how did you know you were doing a good job? What does it mean to be successful? Were you in the top 10% for efficiency or, um tips or things along those lines, um, these are more proof points than just listing out what your duties were. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but um, I think you can yeah, say I, I, I had a thought on that too. Um, just because your jobs that you might've had in the past don't necessarily exactly translate to the position you're applying for, you should for sure talk up what you've done in the past, if it includes leadership skills or teamwork skills, those are both very important and as well as communication skills. 
if you had a job where it was very important to communicate to communicate with uh, a team or you know anybody else outside of that you should really talk that up in your interview because like mark said those are things that are being looked for in the interview process so just because you don't have direct work experience with the job you're applying for doesn't mean that you can't talk up past experiences you've had because they they can for sure translate yeah absolutely having a couple of examples of of what you learned from each one of those experiences and you know the examples can be failures too or they can be mistakes um you know that that's part of the humility i think and you know mistakes are really our friend if we make a mistake that means we learn something if we did it right we haven't we haven't grown at all from that and so um i i think that that can be something that can kind of set you aside a little bit if you talk about you know screwing something up and then learning from it and becoming better yeah um i want to get your thoughts on this something that i have done in the past is scheduling kind of informational interviews or just kind of, you know, sit down, chat for coffee with um, industry professionals or people that are hiring. And I wasn't even looking for employment necessarily. I was just looking for somebody to learn from and ask questions to. So, you know, what are your thoughts on just scheduling a, you know, a casual 30 minute conversation with an industry professional to learn rather than just only seeking employment. I think that's great. I mean, that that's quite honestly the exact methodology that I use to, to get my foot in the door in this industry, which, um, which by the way, was a part-time job. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it wasn't, um, it was moving in the right direction. It wasn't, it wasn't the ultimate objective. And, uh, and I think that's important too, is that, you know, you don't necessarily have to get to where you want to ultimately get to right away. Uh, I think that you can learn from all sorts of experiences. And, uh, so having an open mind about, about different possibilities, but yeah, uh, the informational interviews, uh, I would say the, the, the biggest thing from my perspective um, in doing those um, kind of on this side, on the, you know, working in the business side is that um, it's, it's really helpful to know what it is you're, what it is you're looking for and what you want to learn about ahead of time if possible. And so that could be just uh, a, a, a couple of questions. I mean, you, you've asked me some great questions today. And so it could be some of the questions about, you know, what should I be, you know, positioning myself in terms of activities and clubs and, you know, what should I be doing in order to, you know, get that first interview or it could be interview tips or it could be, um, you know, what, what do you, what do you think a great first position would, would be in this industry? You know, what type of firm, what type of company, um, but just trying to prime the person that you're going to do an informational interview interview with, um, with what you're trying to get out of it. 
Um, because I think if I know what you're trying to get out of it, then I know you really care about it. You know, it's not just something you're doing for the heck of it. Uh, you, you really are interested in something. Um, and if you don't know what to ask for, uh, you can always just say, Hey, I don't even know what I should be asking. What do you think is really, a, you know, what, what I want to talk about is what you think is really important for me to know about starting a career in this industry. Um, it can be open-ended too. Yeah. Um, and kind of pivoting. So, you know, taking those tips, applying it to your interview or job search. Uh, once you've maybe gotten that internship that you were looking for, or maybe a full-time job, uh, what do you think is something that employers are looking for out of their interns or full-time employees? Maybe, you know, skills, um, questions that they ask, what are the things that an employer is going to be looking for? So uh, I think one of the most important things about, uh, about starting an internship or, or your first full-time job is, is, and I mentioned this earlier, but find out what the, what the employer's wanting out of it. You know, if you're going to get, if you're going to start an internship, you should ask, why do you have an internship program? What, what is the company wanting from this? What, what's important to you as, you know, as a company to have an internship program? Um, it, you know, initially expectations as an intern are probably fairly low. So find out what they are and meet and then exceed them. You know, the greatest way to move your career forward is to get noticed. And the greatest way to get noticed is to exceed what's expected of you. Um, if, if you exceed what's expected of you, you'll be given more challenging work, more responsibility, and uh, you'll no longer be treated like that intern or like that new hire. You'll quickly kind of move on beyond that. And, um, but, but it starts with asking the question, why do you have an internship program or why do you hire new graduates, you know, and really trying to, to peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak on, on what it is the employer is looking for out of having you be part of the team. Yeah. Those are some great thoughts. Um, one question that I've asked uh, interviewers before, and it's, you know, it's a it's a good question, I think, because it shows your long term interest in the company you're working for. Um, and that's if you were to hire me, how would you know that I'm the right fit for the company one year ahead of time? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Would you be able to give some like an answer to that? You know, like what you're looking for after a year of employment to know this guy's the right fit or this girl's the right, right fit? That's a, that's a good question. I, I think one element of it is have, uh, ha has that person been able to meet the expectations of the job and have they added value to the organization? So meeting the expectations, that's the, uh, that's what maybe from an employer perspective is unknown 
right? We, we if we know what the expectations are, great. But but it's really moving beyond that and and adding value to the organization, and that could be uh, turning an aspect of of the job into uh, something that's more of a process or a system uh, that's simpler or that's faster or that's uh, less prone to error, or perhaps it's something that uh, somebody with even less knowledge and skill can do. Um, I, you know, I think when uh, when when we when we look at development of people at any level in the organization. The, the development trajectory uh, it is really, the, the goal of it is really to uh, work yourself out of a job, uh, which sounds bizarre, but um, if, you can, uh, if you can turn what was more complicated into something simple and teach somebody else how to do it, teach the next new person how to do it, and they can do it twice as fast as you originally could because you made it better and easier, then you just naturally sort of move up. And so that can be uh, an initial kind of, you know, one year in, um, going back to the root of your question, you know, uh, where where were these tasks um, at the beginning of that internship and where were they at the end or the end of the first year? Um, and, and has there been value added to the organization beyond just accomplishing the work. Yeah, that's a great answer. And, you know, I think you can kind of see it with without even needing feedback from an individual that you're working with. You can just see as an intern or employee when you provide good service or, you know, good work to the team that you're working with, you know, things just naturally kind of work out, you know, the financial plan, for instance, gets sent off to the advisor, they use it, everybody's happy. Um, you know, and when you effectively communicate where you are in that process, that's another huge tip. Um, good communication leads to success. Um, it, you can just kind of naturally see the end result without needing confirmation from anybody else. Yeah. And if you, if you do what's expected of you and then a little bit more, it gets noticed. It really does. Yeah. And, and when you do a little bit more, you, you develop a, a reputation for that. And when you develop a reputation for being helpful within a, an organization or a team, then everyone wants you on their team. They want you to help with their project. They want you to help with their client. And so, uh, you know, I, I think as much as we, we try to try to focus on what we can learn and, and how we can be better, uh, which is sort of, uh, looking at the world around us and uh, and and then try to pull things in to improve ourselves. I think if you flip that around and you focus a little bit more on what you can do for others and just consistently, you know, add add value and help out the people around you, then that's what progresses your internship into a full time job or your you know 
entry-level position and, and do a, a longer-term career. Doors will open that you can't possibly foresee if you uh, if you focus on what you can do for others and not what they're going to do for you and build that reputation of just being a helpful gal or guy. Yeah, very good point. And if you kind of expand that to a, a firm, financial planning firm-wide scale, um, I've learned this in my experiences that the best way to generate new clients and new business is just by doing good work for your existing clients and not, you know, I, I know people think a lot of financial planning is just cold call sales, uh, pushing a product or something, but really the best way for you to generate new business and new relationships is just by, like you said, taking that extra step and going above and beyond for your clients that you already have. That way, you know, you, the clients you have will be happy and they'll be happy to refer your services to family, friends, or anybody else. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to trust in the financial planning world. Uh, if clients trust you as an advisor or, or you as a, an advisory firm, uh, then then they stick with you and they believe in you and they uh, they listen and follow through on advice that you give. Um, and and I think uh, I, I think trust is something that that we all probably ought to think a little bit more about. Um, and you know what are the what are the traits of being trustworthy? You know, um, you need to be authentic and real, right? Not, not fake and, and, uh, pretending, um, mm -hmm. you need to be consistent. You need to follow through. Um, you need to, uh, uh, be kind and compassionate, but truthful also. Right. And so sometimes that's, uh, needing to be candid, right? We, we don't want to sugarcoat things necessarily, but we can say things in a kind, compassionate way way, even if they're challenging to say. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think from both a client perspective and uh, a manager perspective, um, uh, you know, a component of, of trust worthiness is if you're available. So clients want to know that I'm available. When they call, they want me to be available. When they email, they want me to respond in a, in a quick manner. Um, it's the same thing working on a team. It's the same thing being an intern or, or you know, working on a, on a team in a full-time way. Um, you got to be available. Um, and, uh, and then you got to think outwardly, you know, how can I, how can I help you? Not, not uh, how can I better myself through, through this interaction? Yeah, all good points. Uh, Dan, do you have any thoughts on what we've been talking about or do you have any separate questions that you want to ask? No, I agree hundred percent. I think trust, as you guys have mentioned and talked about is hugely important. And you guys gave some great attributes to building trust. I just add another, I'd say, and, and Mark is, and both you guys have mentioned this is being humble, being vulnerable. Hey, nobody's perfect. If you make a mistake, just take ownership of it. Apologize. If you've, harmed anyone or caused anyone confusion and move forward. But you have to have that humility, I think, in order to be a good teammate. 
and, and build trust. Yeah, absolutely. And a component of humility, I, I think, is, you, you know, anytime you have an interaction with somebody else, it doesn't matter who they are. Um, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't matter if it's a, uh, an advisor in this industry or somebody who's a speaker in this industry or, you know, my, my 14 year old niece. Um, if, if I have that conversation with that person with the assumption that I'm going to learn something, that's humility. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yep, absolutely. And um, I'm working on some mentorship things for the FPA, some mentorship training, and kind of along those lines. I think mentors can learn from their mentees just as well as the mentees can learn from their mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, and they call it reciprocal mentorship. So yeah, that's absolutely spot on. Um, let's change directions if we could, uh, Mark and Charlie. Um, I'm fascinated to find out a little bit more, uh, again, t- totally switching gears here, but kind of coming back to our money discussion. Um, you guys have really do a nice job on financial psychology and your firm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but really kind of hangs their hat on bringing more financial psychological aspects behavioral aspects into the client engagement. Um, could you could you talk about that a little bit more? And also how could how could students be able to learn a little bit about some of the um, things that you bring to the client engagement as far as financial psychology? Yeah, absolutely. I I um so I work for a, a firm that was founded in 1988 and uh, the, the, the two, two people who founded it, um, were really in the education space initially and their thesis at the time in the late eighties was that if, if we could just educate folks about personal finance, then they'd make better decisions. Right. And that was the lens they took when they built the company and, and, you know, started working with clients and they quickly quickly realized that, gosh, people aren't making different decisions just because they're educated. Um, why is that? And 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 that's what led uh, led our company down the path of learning about uh, about psychology and about why why folks make the decisions that they do. And you know, fast forward a long ways, um, we we take an approach where um, where we help help clients learn about themselves and about uh, what motivates them when making money related decisions maybe things that they're that they're seeking like peace and harmony with their partner um, or growth right maybe very growth orientated um, or things that they're trying to avoid um, trying to avoid uh, instability, trying to avoid losing it all, um, trying to uh, avoid being fearful when they, you know, pull up uh, their app on their phone and see what, what happened in the, in the market. Um, And, and initially in the, 
in the very beginning stages when we when we meet with folks for the for the first time, really, you know, so they're not a client; they're just interested in financial planning. Um, we really explore, and we use some tools that we've developed for this, um, but it's really just conversation. And I think, in particular, when um, when when spouses or partners uh, uh, experience this and listen to the conversation we have with the other one, because we kind of do one, you know, take turns, one spouse first, then the next. Um, they learn so much about each other and uh, and and why they maybe have those uh, those characteristics that they have um, when 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 they when they deal with money. And so at the end of the day, what I tell everybody, every single client of ours is that, you know, we we are in the business of giving advice and helping guide you on decision making. You are in the business of making decisions. And so we don't make decisions for anybody. Um, we can provide advice and clients can take that advice or they can uh, decide something else. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, the, the whole objective that we have, though, is is to help clients make informed decisions. And the informed component is twofold. One is making sure that they know the numbers around all these decisions. Okay, so buying a car versus leasing a car, right? Uh, maybe there's three scenarios. You buy with cash, you take a loan, or you lease. Okay, three possibilities, right? There's math around each of those. We need to be able to analytically provide the the, the math around that. So so a client can, can make a financially informed decision. But there's also personal preferences and there's motivations and there's biases on those. You know, you might have grown up in a household where your family never had a loan for anything but the mortgage. You save money and you pay cash for everything. Okay. That's a rule of thumb that you learn from mom and dad growing up. Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know, but it's part of who you are and we're not going to change it, but let's acknowledge that. Let's acknowledge that in this decision-making process because your, uh, your partner may have grew up in a family where dad worked in sales and every every three years he got a new a new car and they leased because he was in sales and he was driving around and you needed to have a nice new automobile to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, your your spouse might have grown up in a completely different environment. And so again, neither right or wrong, but we should we should acknowledge maybe some of those um the origins of of where where our um, where our biases come from, uh, and 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 also decide to what extent that is applicable to today's decision. Um, so I, I I think when you come come at financial planning through the lens of just helping guide clients make better decisions, you have to incorporate both the the financial analytical um, you know the math as well as um, as well as what one's personal preferences might be. Yeah, and I think you bring up an excellent point. And in that, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on the importance of just understanding how you grew up with money. I, I have my students go through that as an exercise in one of the classes, but that has to be just a kind of a central point as you're pointing out on um, future behavior, 
just understanding what your your past behavior is. I'll give you a good example from my own household. My I grew up with money in probably not the right way. My parents were loving parents, gave a nice home, but they just spent money. They looked way beyond their means. I remember collection calls. I remember people coming to the house demanding money and they just didn't do a good job with management. And so we as siblings, I had three brothers and sisters once passed away, but we're legendary now for our frugality. Uh, we will not, <laughs> you know, I can right. just give stories of one of them that just would shock you as how frugal and and they're they're all very wealthy, seven figure wealth. Um, my wife, on the other hand, she grew up very with very good money management lessons, but along the same lines as being thrifty with your money being frugal with your money, living within your means. And so we've kind of just kind of came together. Um, and I think maybe you see that from the couples. I'd like to hear your comments on that and how that could fit together. Well, related to, to the, you know, the family that you grew up in, Dan, I, I would say most commonly the apple doesn't fall far from the tree or it rolls a long ways away mm -hmm. in that you you either end up very like your parents or one of your parents or very unlike them. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, and you are who you are and your wife is who she is. And together you, uh, you, you just broadly speaking, couples end up in one of a couple of different scenarios. You're either both very much alike and you are frugal. You're both very much alike and you spend or you're to a degree opposite to one another. And from a from a financial planning perspective, uh, the the first two scenarios, um, well, we we meet a lot of folks who are frugal, right? They they want financial advice because they value growth and they, they like to see account balances grow, right? And so we have a lot of clients, and this industry has a lot of clients who are probably similar to you and your wife. Mm -hmm. The The second scenario, you know, you, you spend, she spends, we don't get phone calls from, from you if that's the case. Right. I mean, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to be as far away from a financial advisor as possible. Cause you don't want to get told to do something that you don't want to do. Right. Um, the, the third scenario where you're very different though, that's what causes conflict. Mm -hmm. And that's very common. And, and, you know, just last week I had had a meeting with clients that I've worked with since 2015, and they've never displayed any degree of conflict whatsoever uh, uh, about spending and saving decisions. And all of a sudden they are. And it turns out that they have just very different styles around how they manage their, their cash flow. And neither is right or wrong. You know, it, it's okay. It's who we are. And I, I think the best way to guide people is to help them understand why they are the way they are. And more importantly, why their partner is the way their partner is. And, uh, and then, and then we can figure out, okay, if there's a Venn diagram here, where's the common, where's the common ground in terms of our joint objectives and, uh, where can we agree to disagree and, and operate a little bit differently? Um, and, and that can manifest itself in, um, you know, 
for example, a cash flow management structure where, um, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps both spouses' paychecks go into a joint account, and then there's a certain amount each month that gets funneled over to individual checking accounts, and uh, they can each spend it on whatever they want, but they right. can't ask or or um, they they can't uh, judge what their spouse is doing on that, you know, hundred bucks a month or whatever it is that goes into that individual account. So this is a version where, you know, okay, we're, we're a team, we're taking care of things together, but we also need some autonomy, some healthy autonomy. So, you know, and that's a good, a good construct for some folks, but it doesn't work for others. Um, and, and so the more you can learn about where the, uh, where the desires and preferences come from, and the and the more you can communicate that with uh, with one another in a financial planning relationship, uh, the more likely uh, I I think households are set up for success um, in in you know figuring out their best way to to manage their unique circumstances around money. Makes total sense. Would you suggest? that students kind of go through that exercise of just kind of thinking back to what are your early money memories? How did you grow with money? And kind of to your point, maybe find what they would feel would be successful attributes to adopt, or maybe some situations that they want to avoid, just so that they can help them make better financial decisions in the future. Do you think that's a, a good exercise for students? I'm kind of thinking it's going to be yes, but maybe. Yeah, can... absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, so uh, I'll give you the, sh the short version of it, but we, we do a genogram exercise with folks. Mm -hmm. um, so this is where you start with drawing the family tree. And so uh, we'll, Charlie, we'll use you as an example here. So, you know, we got Charlie in the middle of the diagram and Charlie's got parents and uh, parents may or may not be who who raised Charlie, but so there might be other folks in there. And then there's a grandparent level and then there's a sibling level. Um, maybe there's older siblings and maybe those older siblings have have kids. So, you know, there there could be a niece, nephew level. But we draw out the family tree, basically. Um, doesn't matter how you do it. You can use different um, different notations, et cetera, et cetera. But we draw that out. And then and then we start asking questions of Charlie, like, what was dad like when you, when you were growing up, you know, what did he do for work? And we learn about that. And, um, you know, how would you describe how dad handled his money? Same thing about mom, you know, and did mom and dad talk about money or not? Who paid the bills? And we, we, you know, we ask all these questions about, about kind of what the construct of the family, uh, finances were, um, you know, including, were you, uh, you know, were you sort of middle class in your community, or or upper class, or dirt poor? Or, you know, where where were you in in the community, and uh, and then what are the what are the you know most prominent two, three, four, five uh, stories or lessons you felt you learned about money when you were growing up, um, and ultimately what we try to identify and tease out are maybe two or three words that, that Charlie, you might use to describe mom in, in how she handled money. So mom could be, uh, mom could be prudent and mom could be calculating. Um, and, 
but mom could also be caring. You know, maybe she was generous and, you know, you as kids, you know, wanted or needed something and, you know, she'd take you to Valley Fair to go on rides every once in a while. So she could be generous and, and prudent and, and calculating. And then dad's got words too. And then, uh, and then, and then the conversation would, would uh, sort of migrate into, all right. So, you know, mom was, was calculating. How, how do you feel you are, you know, Charlie, are you calculating with, with your money or, or, you know, do you identify with that or not? And, you know, are you generous? Do you identify with that or not? And then for all of those words, we'd, we'd also follow up with, all right, so you're calculating with money. Do you feel like, do you feel like you're too calculating or not calculating enough or, or just right? You know, is that something you want to dial up or down? Or is that something that you're pretty happy with? Hmm. Um, and, and that's how we do a genogram. Um, and it can take quite, quite a bit of time. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, you, you don't have to have somebody do it for you, but I think it's a lot easier if, if there's a little bit of a, a, a structure to it. Um, so if, you know, if you followed that, that structure and asked those questions of a friend and then, then had them ask similar questions of you and kind of sketched it out and, and teased out some of those words and characteristics and things that you identify with and want to dial up or dial down, I, I, that that's kind of the, the root and the core of where we where we start with um, trying to identify some of these, uh, well, I'll call it money personalities that we all have. Yeah, I think um, that even doing it as a student might be even more beneficial as a kind of laying out the groundswork because those memories are so recent and students are most likely still living with parents. So they can kind of see it and, you know, write out that family tree because they're still living it. So I would agree that that's a, a really good thing that students can do. Maybe it's not a family tree. Maybe they could figure out another way, um, another exercise. But doing that as a student can only benefit you in the future with your, your money decisions. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, um, I think the more the more, more introspective we can be about why the way we are, uh, the 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 more we can make decisions that uh, that are a bit better. You know, you don't uh, you don't have to necessarily like a decision that you make, a financial decision that you make, if it's uh, if it's contrary to who you are, but you know that the dollars and cents make sense on paper. You know, you know, you know that if you, uh, you know, paid cash for the car or got a low low interest loan for the car instead of leasing it, that it's, you know, a financially better decision. If you grew up leasing, um, you don't have to like that you're driving an older vehicle that you paid cash for or, or you you took a loan for, and you're going to drive it for eight or ten years instead of two or three. You don't have to like that, but if you can recognize. This is why I don't like it, but I also recognize why financially it makes sense for me to do it. And I intentionally made this decision with this financial component in mind. Then when you're stressed about it or you don't like it or, you know, you got to bring it in for service and it's $800 for new brakes and whatever else, you can be okay with that. You can feel settled with it um, mm -hmm. because you've acknowledged the the emotion that you know is going to crop up because you're you're 
making an intentional decision that's sort of contrary to, uh, uh, you know, the lessons that you learned or the way that you were, you were brought up. It's hmm. fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, we're, we're out of time, Mark and Charlie. Um, any final thoughts, Charlie, from your side? Um, no, I, it was really awesome to have you take the time and interview with us and maybe just going off the last point, um, you know, going with the smart financial decision that makes sense versus the emotional decision, what feels right, generally will lead you to the right path. Doing what's right versus what feels right is going to lead you to success even though it might be uncomfortable um it's going to be a good decision most of the time absolutely i'll uh i'll just leave you with one random piece of financial advice that i that i have given a lot of folks um this is a com completely uh unasked for uh piece of advice but i i think it's very relevant for for college students and that is learn how to cook. You should really learn how to cook because it is so expensive to eat out and you can eat better and healthier and about 10 times cheaper if you learn how to cook. I stumbled upon that when I was in college. I just happened to have a roommate who had had grew up cooking and had worked in restaurants and knew what he was doing. And, and he taught me how to cook. And, uh, you know, it wasn't an intentional thing to learn, but by gosh, that has been uh, uh, a wonderful thing to, a wonderful skill to have here. So learn how to cook. It'll it's a phenomenal frozen yeah. pizza count. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if you make your own ramen, oh, go towards that. I don't know. It's, Could it's be. funny. <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because Susie Orman, financial guru, said the exact same thing, and <laughs> I. You guys are just cut from the same cloth, so to speak. Um, you know, it kills me every time I walk by the food court and I see students lined up waiting for their latte that I don't know how much are they, six, seven bucks, and they could buy a latte machine and pay for itself after about four or five. So, <laughs> anyway. yeah. And, you know, I mean, I go out to eat and every once in a while splurge on those sorts of things, sure. but, yep. um, but on the on the regular, learn learn how to cook. I think <laughs> that's great advice. Well, Mark, you were this was filled with great advice. We really super appreciate your time. This was one of the best episodes I think we've had. So thanks so much for carving out part of your busy day. And Charlie, thanks for those great questions too. And uh, stay tuned for the next exciting episode coming to you soon. Take care, everyone. Well, that's our episode for today. Thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you found one thing you can apply today to make progress with your money. In future episodes, we'll introduce something called Your Blueprint, which will be a way for you to capture some of the things you've learned over the episodes into a document you can refer to as you plan your way. And if you have any ideas for our team to cover, please drop us a line. We'd love to cover it for you. And if you liked our episode, again, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, or tell a friend about it, rate and review the podcast, and please stay tuned for more MAV Money Talks. Have a great day.